The time is now. Hello there, Volume 4, Episode 55. This is Employment Law Now, and I am Mike Schmidt, your trusty host. I want to talk today about six developments that really should be on your radar if they aren't already. Um, Six things that will have, I think, a very significant impact uh, in 2020 and beyond on your workforce and how your company conducts its business. This, I really think, is a special, a really good episode for you. You know, it's like when you're watching those infomercials and they're trying to sell you this knife set. And you get all excited because you're going to get the nice six steak knives and maybe you're going to get the, the butcher block there. Um, but then they tell you as the infomercial goes on, well, if you order right now, we're going to double the set. And then for the first 100 callers, we're going to give you free shipping and handling. And on top of that, we're going to give you this glossy recipe book. Well, that's sort of how I feel with this episode. You know, there are podcasts out there that might spend 15 minutes, a half hour focused on one of these developments, maybe two developments, my gosh, three developments at most. But here you are, sitting at your desk, on the train, in the car, in your kitchen, on the beach if you're in a different part of the world than I'm in, listening to this podcast, and you're going to get not one, not two, not three developments, you're getting six significant employment law developments right here, right now. Talk about your one-stop shopping, talk about your full-service value-add. This is exciting. So with that, let's just get right into these six things I want to be on your radar. The first one is uh, another really good study in why it's important to keep reminding yourself of the distinctions between federal law and state law. In this particular case, we're talking about payment to your employees for pre- or post-shift security screenings. So on the state level, California just issued a ruling uh, in a case called Freiken versus Apple, for those of you keeping score at home, Freiken versus Apple, where the California court determined that store employees at Apple had to be paid for the time that they spent waiting in and going through anti-theft security checks after their shift ended and they were leaving work. So a pretty significant decision out there under California law because it is significantly going to increase the amount of compensation that someone's entitled to. And, oh, by the way, if the time spent there puts them over, you know, 40 hours uh, in a week, uh, whatever the uh, overtime uh, threshold is in California, um, you're going to have to be paying employees potentially uh, overtime compensation as well. 
Yet what makes this really interesting and fairly significant is that the federal law is, for the most part, well settled at this point and quite different. In 2014, the United States Supreme Court, in a decision called Integrity Staffing Solutions versus Busk, that is Integrity Staffing Solutions versus Busk, the Supreme Court ruled that warehouse employees at Amazon were not entitled to get paid under federal law for the time spent on a security line because there, the time spent was not, quote, integral and indispensable, end quote, to the warehouse principal job activities. So now you have, on the one hand, California state law, which is finding that the time spent in these security check lines have to be compensated, whereas the Supreme Court found in 2014 under federal law that time spent on a security line is not compensable. Well, if you dive into these cases a little bit more, you see that they sort of turned on different principles, even though at the end of the day, the rulings are what they are. So the California Supreme Court really had the issue turn on whether the employees were under the employer's control during the time at issue. And because they were under the employer's control, that time was compensable. Whereas, as I said, the Supreme Court under federal law looked at it from an integral and indispensable standpoint. Other states out there, um, Pennsylvania and New Jersey, just to name a couple, are also considering this issue as a matter of state law. So even though you might have gone thinking that federal law resolved this issue, once again, you always have to keep in mind what the states are doing here, and you need to be aware of your jurisdiction. If you have this kind of pre-shift or post-shift requirement, a security line, a bag check, you need to check your jurisdiction to see where they land on whether the time spent there is compensable. Issue number two, the coronavirus. Well, this is uh, a crazy situation, for lack of a better term. Uh, it is wreaking havoc with people's travel plans, with the global financial markets. Thankfully, uh, there are relatively few of these cases, at least in the United States, but it's still having significant consequences here in the United States. Maybe your company has workers that are based in or travel to China as a particular requirement. Uh, the United States Department of State has actually issued a do not travel advisory, but maybe you have employees who were vacationing or just happened to be traveling through China and now uh, are returning. They were there voluntarily. Um, you're having all kinds of things in the news such as health screenings, uh, required health screenings at certain airports uh, and significant restrictions on individual movement as a result of this. So what are you as an employer to do? We're also seeing uh, government agencies start to take hold of this issue. OSHA, for example, just put out a new bulletin highlighting standards and directives in situations where workers were exposed or potentially exposed to the coronavirus. Um, the OSHA bulletin notes that there is no specific OSHA standard covering this particular illness, but it does reference other existing provisions uh, in the OSHA Act that may apply, such as personal protective equipment standards, bloodborne pathogen standards, and certainly OSHA's catch-all general duty clause that may come into play when we're talking about what obligations an employer might have to maintain a safe and healthy workplace. 
So check out uh, on the OSHA website their new bulletin as it relates to the coronavirus. The EEOC also has guidance, and you might want to check out the EEOC's website as well. They've got guidance now on uh, employer preparedness for pandemics and what the implications may be under the Americans with Disabilities Act. So your company should give some thought to what do you do now for those employees who may be exposed to the coronavirus? What are you going to do in the future if you're not impacted at all by this particular situation? Are you prepared to address it for some later endemic or pandemic down the road? Well, a few takeaways here. Employers, you should think about reviewing your safety and emergency preparedness plans. How prepared are you for these kinds of situations in the future? Perhaps you want to circulate information regarding best hygiene practices and prevention measures for your employees. Give some thought to whether you need to alert the CDC on the federal level or any of your local, state, or city health departments. Perhaps you want to discourage non-essential travel by your employees. Uh, But another thing you also want to give some thought to is something on the harassment and the discrimination level. And I think that there are a lot of companies out there that don't really think of it in that context. So much of what's going on is obviously centered on the particular area of the world, you know, China and potentially neighboring jurisdictions. Um, And we've seen situations, we've heard about situations where employees from those areas, whether or not they've been there recently, are starting to have comments being made, whether in a joking fashion or not in a joking fashion. So you want to be sensitive as a company, I think, to any potential harassment, any potential discrimination based on national origin, race, or you know some of the other usual characteristics that may come into play as people in your workplace are discussing this um, coronavirus issue. Perhaps you also want to, if somebody has come back recently from China or that area, um, if they are developing symptoms, you may want to instruct them to stay home for the 14-day period that uh, is being referred to now and perhaps even get a physician's return-to-work authorization. Whatever you are doing in this area, obviously you want to be mindful of the Americans with Disabilities Act issues, the ADA, certainly FMLA entitlement. You also want to be cognizant that you're not opening yourself up to defamation or invasion of privacy issues. Um, So there are a whole host of things, again, that you should be thinking about doing. There is no one-size-fits-all for every company, but this is an issue that certainly should continue to be on your radar, uh, as it doesn't seem to be going away uh, anytime soon. Issue number three, New York City is back in the news. Uh, You know, so many people still come up to me and say, Mike, why do we have to worry so much about employment law? Aren't all of our employees at will? And I used to tell them, and in some cases still tell them, yeah, uh, from a technical standpoint, unless you have a particular contract or other limitation on the ability to terminate your employees, yes, they are at will employees. But as we have seen and as we have talked about over the last several years, we are beginning to see the erosion of this at will employment concept. And in fact, governments over the last couple of years have been eroding little by little 
this at-will concept. Some jurisdictions more than others. Well, New York City has continued its attack over the last several years on a particular industry, the fast food industry. But you also can look at what they've been doing with regard to the fast food industry as perhaps um, a little bit of a crystal ball as to the potential direction that jurisdictions like New York City may take toward employers generally regardless of what the industry is. So let me tell you what I'm talking about. On the heels of the 2017 local New York City laws that were enacted having to do with the fast food industry and primarily relating to scheduling predictability, New York City is now proposing to place further restrictions on all industries um, and uh, all kinds of employers in New York City, most notably the following. They are proposing to prohibit all layoffs in the fast food industry absent bona fide economic reasons. They are proposing to create a labor arbitration process that will either be in lieu of or in conjunction with a private right of action in court. They are also proposing in the fast food industry that employers are required to have a progressive discipline system and to prohibit any termination of an employee unless there is just cause for that termination. Again, the most express and the most blatant elimination of the pure at-will concept. And again, we can have this debate as to whether there is such thing anymore uh, of a pure at-will concept, but this proposal requiring that someone can be terminated only if there is just cause and that there has to be a progressive discipline system really for the very first time is express in its desire to prohibit this pure at-will notion. So we will certainly follow uh, this. We will see whether it's got a real chance of getting signed uh, to become law in New York City. Um, but no question that New York City is taking a very um, expansive and broad leap forward. We are finally seeing legislation that is expressly aimed at eliminating the at-will employment nature of its employees. Um, it's something to watch, not just in New York City, but elsewhere also, because jurisdictions like New York City, like California, seem to be the leaders when it comes to this type of legislation. Uh, and ultimately, it finds its way to other states and other cities and towns as well. Issue number four of our six key developments for today um, initiatives in the pay equity area continue, and we continue to keep hearing and reading about salary history bans. Well, a real significant development just took place uh, in the city of Brotherly Love uh, as a significant lawsuit uh, hasn't been totally resolved, but has taken a major step with regard to Philadelphia's wage equity ordinance. And it's worth noting, not just for those of you who are in the Pennsylvania area, um, and perhaps in the Third Circuit area, but uh, those around the country, because this is its first of a kind, I think, um, decision, but it's going to be one that you may see other courts adopting. A little bit of a history lesson or a reminder, back in 2017, City of Philadelphia enacted uh, an ordinance to address the gender pay gap. And basically it said two things. One, employers cannot ask about an applicant's wage history. 
And number two, employers cannot rely on the applicant's wage history at any point when setting or negotiating the applicant's or the new employee's wage. Well, the Philadelphia Chamber of Commerce filed a lawsuit essentially on free speech grounds. The lower court granted a preliminary injunction back in April of 2018 on the first part of the prohibition only. The lower court said, we will enjoin you, we will prohibit you from enforcing the part of the ordinance which says that employers cannot ask about applicants' wage history. The district court's rationale was that that violates employers' free speech. However, we will not issue a preliminary injunction with regard to the second prong of that ordinance, which simply prohibited employers from relying on wage history. Well, just a couple of weeks ago, on February 6, 2020, the federal court for the Third Circuit Court of Appeals overturned the lower court's decision. The Third Circuit said that although the ordinance does regulate speech, um, it passes the intermediate scrutiny test because the city has a substantial interest in closing the wage gap. And the way this ordinance attempts to do that directly advances that interest. So the Third Circuit said, well, it certainly is dealing with speech, but there is this intermediate scrutiny test. We are going to look at it, and the city's ordinance passes muster. There is enough of a close connection between a substantial interest that the city has and the way it is going about trying to advance that substantial interest. The interest being, again, trying to close the gender wage gap. So we are likely to see um, this issue continuing to gain steam, not only in jurisdictions enacting these salary history bans where they haven't yet, but also courts ultimately upholding these salary history bans, at the very least on free speech grounds like uh, the Third Circuit just relied on. Issue number five, mandatory arbitration. And we're going to go from the East Coast now, New York City and Pennsylvania, back to California. You never want to have California feeling left out of these podcast episodes. So let's look at California right now and uh, the significant stuff that's going on still out there. First, mandatory arbitration continues to be the rage around the country, and California has certainly been the star of that show. Known lovingly as AB 51, the California legislation here has been designed to prevent mandatory arbitration of employment-related claims. Yet early this month, on February 3rd of 2020, a federal court in California issued a preliminary injunction barring the state's enforcement of that legislation, of AB 51, on a couple of grounds. Uh, federal law, the Federal Arbitration Act, the FAA, controls here, so says the California court. And the court determined, one, that arbitration agreements were impermissibly placed on unequal footing with other types of contracts through this AB 51 legislation. And number two, that the legislation interferes with the federal law's goal of favoring and promoting arbitration. Therefore, so says the court, AB 51 is preempted and we are going to issue a preliminary injunction. Now, those of you should also keep in mind Again, when we're talking about a court issuing an injunction, that doesn't necessarily mean that that's where the case ends. From a procedural standpoint, usually uh, 
parties will go in to try to get an injunction to stop something from happening or to maintain the status quo pending an ultimate resolution of the merits. So this case is really no different in that regard. Um, there still is going to be a, a fight over the merits and the ultimate enforceability of AB 51 that will require a court decision. But there is no question that in cases like this one too, where you are dealing with an injunction early on, you do have some sense of where the court is going to be going ultimately, um, unless something changes throughout the course of the litigation. But for the time being, at the moment, the California legislation preventing mandatory arbitration of employment-related claims, AB 51, has been enjoined. And as long as we are staying out in California, and who wouldn't want to be in California this time of year, another closely watched development is AD 5, AD, uh, sorry, AB 5, uh, dealing with worker misclassification and whether an individual is properly deemed an independent contractor or not. AB5. Here you have the federal judge in California going the opposite way. Federal judge in California just rejected a request by Uber and some other parties for a preliminary injunction to stop enforcement of AB5. The court basically ruled that the states need to ensure that there are no misclassifications, that that need outweighs any harm, potential harm, to employers. Again, remember, this is just at the injunction stage, not a decision on the merits, but it is interesting, I think, to contrast this decision where the judge refused to issue an injunction uh, and the decision on the arbitration, the AB 51, where a court uh, did issue a preliminary injunction. I think you really need to look at what the different interests are in both cases. In the AB 51 arbitration legislation, there really is this strong interest still, at least on the federal level, to promote and to favor arbitration. While when you're looking at the kind of legislation like AB 5 dealing with independent contractor status, the interest there is a powerful one on the state level and really on the federal level as well to make sure that employees are not misclassified. So I don't know that it's all that surprising that you got the two different results uh, at the injunction stage in both of these cases, the AB 51 arbitration and the AB 5 worker misclassification, but they are significant developments and they do continue to be worth watching. From the independent contractor standpoint, you are seeing this issue not just in California, and we've talked about this on other episodes, uh, but elsewhere around the country, particularly those that are following California's ABC test. Because in so many industries, so many industries, the thing that is really going to um, make it difficult, if not impossible, for companies to classify individual workers as independent contractors is the one element which says that you need to be able to demonstrate that the worker is engaged in work that does not lie at the core of what your business does. It is ancillary to and not lying at the core of what your business does. And that is a very difficult, if not impossible, element to prove in so many cases. So 
Again, let's keep watching. You all need to be continuing to watch what's going on in California and elsewhere, both on the mandatory arbitration front and certainly on the independent contractor worker misclassification front. Uh, if you have a model right now where you have significant use of independent contractors or if you are thinking of entering into such a model, you really want to make sure you know what your jurisdiction says and what test you need to be able to pass in order to do so. Finally, issue number six, uh, and it's much more of an interesting trend than it is uh, a significant case decision or acute development. Um, it's a trend I want to just mention today, but it's one that we're going to continue to follow, and it has to do with telecommuting and working from home. The biggest question that we get asked and that presumably you ask yourselves uh, internally at your company, is telecommuting a good thing? Putting aside whether you have to do it, whether telecommuting or working from home is an accommodation that you have to give, whether for religious purposes or for disability purposes. We're going to put that aside for the moment. The question becomes at so many companies, is this something that we should be doing? Because certainly uh, you, you have to have been hearing the news where more and more companies seem to be offering this as a perk, as a benefit to its employees. And the Gallup poll that I just saw recently had some really interesting data in an attempt to answer that question of, is telecommuting and working from home a good thing? Uh, the Gallup poll, the Gallup study, looked at the period of time, primarily a 20-year period from 1996 to 2016, uh, and noted a couple of interesting things. First, that the number of companies offering remote work options has increased threefold. Uh, as of 2016, 43% of employees have spent some of their time working remotely, and maybe even more significantly, 54% of office workers say that they would leave their job to work somewhere else that offers flex work time. So again, it's clear, I think, if you read this Gallup data, it's clear that not only are employers uh, offering some form of work-from-home option in greater numbers, but employees across the board seem to suggest that this is an option, this is a benefit that we really want. Um, some other interesting takeaways from this uh, data, from this study, Gallup found that the balance of working in the office versus working remotely is most optimal when you're dealing with a 60 to 80 percent time period where the employee works off-site. If you're looking at a five-day work week, that would mean three to four days working off-site, as opposed to 100%. And that is because engagement, according to their study, employee engagement seems to be maximized when employees do spend some time working remotely while also spending some time with their co-workers. Gallup also noted that uh, some semblance of a work-from-home policy and practice is going to be good for the environment. Uh, it reduces energy, uh, as the study shows that more energy is being used in the office than in one's home. The use of supplies such as paper decreases the more you have employees working remotely. It certainly cuts down on air pollution because of the um, uh, fewer hours spent commuting to work. So again, at the end of the day, and putting aside whether telecommuting and remote 
home work uh, is an option from an accommodation standpoint, you really should take a look at whether it's right for you and your business, whether it's something that you can afford to do from a productivity standpoint, from a morale standpoint. Maybe certain employees with certain positions um, might be good for it, while others may not be. But I think the thing that you can't ignore is that telecommuting and working from home is not only something that is being used and offered by businesses, but it's something clearly on the radar of employees that you should be thinking about, again, whether it's right for your particular business. So there you go. There are six significant developments that uh, have been percolating over the beginning of 2020. We are going to continue to see uh, and hear a lot more about these issues, but um, I wanted to get them out to you and have you start thinking about them uh, earlier than later. Appreciate, as always, all the comments that I get, the questions that I get by email and otherwise. Uh, continue to very much appreciate all of you continuing to listen. We are 55 episodes in, uh, and I have heard from people who are really enjoying and feel like they are benefiting from this podcast. So uh, I really appreciate that very much. Continue the comments. If you have something to say, good, bad, or indifferent, uh, any topic that you want to hear addressed on this podcast, please send out an email to me. Let me know what you'd love to hear. If there's a particular guest, somebody in a particular industry you'd love to hear from, let me know that. Otherwise, that is all the time that we have today. And until the next episode, I hope all of your labor is productive.